into the class today. Father, thank you for bringing us out safe to your house in this cold winter day. Thank you for giving us this time and opportunity together. Pray that you teach us now in this hour. Um, help us to learn. We thank you for a new year, new opportunities, and pray that we would walk with you this year even more than we did last year. In Christ's name, amen. Um, we started uh, last week talking about the concept of security and assurance, coming down towards the end of the doctrine of salvation, and then we'll start the doctrine of the church. So that's coming up here fairly soon. But when we talked about this, there's two um, questions, two issues. And a lot of times these are sort of talked about together when you're talking or when you're um, studying salvation, security, and assurance. And they go hand in hand together. And security asks the question, can a truly redeemed person ever lose their salvation? I mean, if you're truly redeemed, if you've truly passed from death to life, is that a reversible process? And that's the question we want to ask and answer in that, question, in that point. The second one is the assurance. Okay, yeah, you're secure forever, but how do I know I'm in on the deal? How do I know I'm saved myself? And that's probably one of the number one questions Christians struggle with. I, I, has, has anyone in here never struggled with their salvation? No, yeah. See, and notice where my hand is? It's down. We've all, we've all done that. And it's a normal part of growing up in the Christian life. And some people struggle to that, with that to different degrees. Um, there are some people that uh, struggle with it their entire lives. Others go through a sort of a, uh, I don't know, a valley where they struggle with it and then they get over it and they're on with their life. But it's a question all of us have to deal with. So we're going to talk about it. When we talk about the security of salvation, there are some arguments that people posit against it. And a lot of these have to do with particular passages in the scripture that are, number one, difficult to deal with in the first place. But two, if you read them without an understanding of the context and what it is they're talking about, you can sort of be led to maybe think that you can lose your salvation. And one of the scripture, or some of the scripture passages um, have to deal with false teachers. And some would, what some people say is, well, if you take these passages and you read them woodenly, literally, and you apply them to Christians, then it would seem to hint that you can lose your salvation. But in fact, what the scripture is talking about are not believers, but unbelievers who look like it. And that's one of the important things to understand. Um, throughout the New Testament, there's warning after warning after warning about people who look like they're Christian. They sort of have an exterior veneer. They hang around the church. They go to church. Um, some have been baptized. Some are on deacon boards. Some of them are even pastors of churches. But they're not truly born again. They're not truly redeemed. And what will happen as time goes on is that will be evident. It'll become more and more evident. Um, John, in 1 John 2, says they went out from us because they weren't of us. You know, yeah. Judas, how long? Take the, take the disciples. Every disciple other than Judas figured he was what? One of them. In fact, even on the night, remember when he went out and betrayed the Lord, they still didn't catch on that what was going on. And how do you know that? Well, he was with them. He ministered with them. He went to the same place as they did. 
and it looked like he was truly one of them, but it was manifested that he never was. He was never a disciple. So it's not that he had salvation and lost it. He never had it. That's the concept. It's not that you have it and lose it. It's that you don't have it. And in Peter, this is one of the favorite passages that Peter like, or people like to go to. In 2 Peter 2, he, Peter's not talking about believers. He's talking about false teachers. He's talking about people who look the part and may seem to be the part, but they're not true believers. They're not truly born again. They've never made the transition from death to life. And there are a lot of people like that. Notice what it says, For if they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they're entangled again and overcome. The latter end is worth, worse with them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it's happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog has turned his own vomit again and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. They, they escaped the pollutions of the world in what sense? That they were born again? What did they buy into a little bit of? The gospel, the morality, the, the need for righteousness. You know. And by the way, are there a lot of really morally good, righteous kinds of people that are not believers? There's a whole lot of them, isn't it? There's a many of them. And it's interesting, I'm reading a book now on the history of fundamentalism. Um, going back to the 1875 and on. And it's interesting how some of the great um, apostates or great figures in the liberal movement. Anybody here of Henry, 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 Henry Emerson Fosdick? Yeah, he's a baddie, right? But he started out, he was, he was really uh, evangelical. I mean, he was, he was connected to the Christian church. But he turned very liberal. I mean, he was one of the granddaddies of the whole liberal movement. Um, the denial of scripture, the denial of inspiration, the whole nine yards. He's one that would stand up and uh, dare God to strike him dead. So if there's a God, I dare him to strike me dead in the next 30 minutes. Now, if I were God. Um, yeah. Um, but uh, the whole point is, and, and you see, it's interesting, you see some of these great enemies of the Christian faith, they started out with a Christian background. But what happened to them? They were never truly converted. They were never truly born again. They never truly believed. And when they turned away from that, they went way the other way because they were never truly redeemed. So it's not that they had it and lost it. They never had it. They were never redeemed. And Peter's talking about people who were never redeemed. He's talking about false teachers that look like they're the real deal, but in the end they're not because they were never truly converted. They're never truly born again. He bought into the liberalism of that era. He bought into the teaching, the liberal theology. And the liberal theology basically denied the, you know, the supernatural nature of the scripture, denied the inspiration of the Bible, it denied Jesus was a good man, but he certainly wasn't God. Good night, we've got to get rid of that idea. And they bought into that whole thing. The social gospel came along with that. Um, but they became great enemies. Uh, Simon Magus was another one, right? I mean, Acts 8, the guy walked down the aisle, he signed the card, he prayed the prayer, he, became a, he got baptized, he became part of the church. And then when Peter shows up and he sees the gift of the Holy Spirit and the tongues, what did he want to do? He wanted to buy it. And Peter said, you don't have any part of this. You better repent. 
And church history tells us later on he became a great enemy of the Christian faith. Yeah. Some of them do. Some of these guys are going to be in Matthew 7, right? Lord, Lord, did we not? There are others that just abandon it. They just don't believe it. I mean, there's all kinds of stripes of this. You know, it's a whole spectrum. Some think they're, they're okay, but they're not. Others just abandon the whole Christian idea and become great enemies. Um, the, the middle of that whole passage right there is the trickiest part, in my opinion, for it has been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness. So that's how that's misleading, because people think, well, knew it means saved. No. But knew about it, knew what it was. They knew it up here. Right. They didn't know it in their heart. All right, and what Peter is warning about there it says, you know, it's better for you if he puts it this way. Um, I hear what she, said. she said the tricky part of this is that some people think in the middle here because that they, they had known it equals salvation. No, can you know all about the Bible, know all about the gospel, know all about Christ, and not be a Christian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's a whole lot of them out there, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. That that know that. So it's not that they are truly born again, but they know about it, okay? And, and the problem is, if, if you know something about it, and you've been exposed to the truth, and you say, bunk, and you go the other way, hell is going to be hotter for you than it is for some guy down in Bongo Bongo that never heard the gospel, never, never heard anything about Christ, and dies and goes to hell. I mean, one of, the, one of the rules of God's judgment or one of the criteria for God's judgment is what light did you know? Remember he said about Crazy and Bethsaida, it's, better, it's going to be better for Sodom? Mm -hmm. Now, good night. You think about any time anybody in the Old Testament wanted to talk about God's judgment, they used Sodom. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was like the primo example of God judging people. And Christ said, you know, it's going to be better off for Sodom. You'd be better off being a Sodomite in the Day of Judgment than it's going to be for being one of you guys in this city hearing me preach right now because if they would have known a smidgen of what you guys know, they would have repented long ago. But you guys had the light and you said no. That's, that, that's something very serious. If you know the way of truth and you turn your back on it, it'd been better for you not to have been born. It'd been better for you not to have ever heard the message than to hear it and go the other way. It's a very dangerous thing. And that, that's one of the things that you have to encourage people. You need to believe because if you don't believe and you neglect, you might slide past the harbor of safety, as it says in Hebrews 12 and Hebrews 2, and you'll never be born again. Yeah, Dave, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, your eternal fate is still hell, but it's not going to be as bad for you as it is for those who come right up to the edge and, and reject it. Now, don't ask me to explain that. I don't know how to do it. I'm just, the scripture is saying that. I mean, Christ. <laughs> no, it doesn't. But Christ said it's better for Sodom and Gomorrah. That had to mean something, right? I mean, it's going to be bad for Sodom and Gomorrah, but it's going to be a whole lot worse for people who have known the truth and rejected it. 
than the people who have never heard it. And that's, God will sort all that out. I don't know how he sorts all, all that out. But he does hint that there is going to be a difference. Well, yeah, the books are open in, in Romans, yeah, Romans, Revelation 20. Why would the books be open if there's no reason to open them? If everybody gets the same punishment, why open the books? Why examine the life? All right, and then there's the passage in Matthew where it says, uh, the servant who knew his master's will and didn't do it will be beaten with many stripes. The one who didn't know it and did not do it will be beaten with few stripes. There's, there's a, and it's better for, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah than Bethsaida there. The Bible hints, just as there are levels of reward in heaven, there are going to be degrees of torment in hell. And a lot of that's going to be that, think about being forever in the lake of fire, knowing that you came that close to missing it. You came that close. You have to live with that forever. That you almost were persuaded. And you didn't make the move. But these passages are not referring to believers, folks. They're referring to people who come up to the edge. And just because somebody uses, when we talked about this for the last two years, if they use Jesus talk, God talk, Bible talk, doesn't mean they're really born again. It doesn't really mean they know it. Um, and then there are some passages that refer to apostates. This goes hand in, sort of close with the other one. What is an apostate? An apostate is someone who willfully rejects the truth. Put it that way. They willfully reject the truth. They know the truth, and they willfully reject it. Now, who's probably the number one apostate in the Bible? Judas, right? What did Judas know? He knew everything. Now, he can't play to ignorance. He can't believe, well, I was really confused about who Jesus was. I mean, come on, guy. You watched Jesus raise the dead, you watched him heal people, you watched him feed the 5,000, you heard him preach for three and a half years, and if you're still confused about who he is, there's something wrong with you. There should be no excuse for him. And at the end of it, what did he do? Well, he sold Christ for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a common slave. I'm going to get out of this thing, get 30 pieces of silver out of the deal at least. He turned his back on the truth. And this is what you find in Hebrews. The, the difficult passages in Hebrews, especially this one here, was probably one of the most argued passages in the entire scripture. And really, this is almost like the proof text for people that want to say you'd lose your salvation. That's one of their proof texts it's that, in their, in their mind, proves it. But understand what this passage is saying. This passage is not saying they are born again, but what have they done? They've tasted Think of the people that were alive when um, Christ fed the 5,000. Did they taste the heavenly gift? Definitely. Definitely. What about uh, the 10 lepers? Did they taste it? Yeah, they tasted it, didn't they? Which one was truly born again? The one that came back. And Christ told him, your faith has saved you. That tells The other guys were healed. He was saved. Did, uh, did Christ heal many people that were never believers? What about the servant of the high priest? He put the ear back on. I mean, the point here is that, folks, he's not talking about people that are truly born again. He's talking about people that have tasted, they know what the gospel is all about. They know what Christ is all about. And in fact, some of them he's writing to knew Christ. And may have even been there when he did his miracles. They know about it, but they haven't committed themselves to it. Yeah. Um, just, um, it says here in the passage, we're made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Yeah. And a lot of times 
All right. No, I understand. I understand. And some people use it and say, well, they're partaker of the Holy Ghost, so therefore they were truly born again. But a way to understand that is when Christ did all of his miracles, in whose power did he do them? The power of? The Holy Spirit. Right. He didn't do them of his own authority. He did them in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why, for example, when he got after the... the remember the, when they said, well, you're doing all your miracles by Beelzebub, the prince of demons? And he said that, you're not going to, now wait a minute. You can, you can say something against me, but you say something against the Holy Spirit. That's not forgivable. What is Christ saying? The things he's doing, he's doing by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Yeah, well, they were made partakers of the Holy Spirit in the sense that they saw the miracles, the healing, the power, the, the message. I mean, here's a question. Does the Holy Spirit work in the heart of an unbeliever to bring them to repentance? Yes. But what do they need to do then? They need to repent. They need to go all the way. Now, is there a sense in which the Holy Spirit will convict certain people? I mean, there's a general conviction, right? But what happens if you turn away from that? We're talking human perspective. You're not born again, right? Have you known anybody that's gone to church and have been convicted and, you know, need to do something, but they just never get around to doing it? Were they partakers of the Holy Spirit in a sense? Sure they were. See, the problem is, and this is the other thing here, if you want to say you can lose your salvation here, the difficulty is you'll never get it again. It says if you, if you fall away, it's impossible to renew you again to repentance. Therefore, it's a one-shot deal. If you want to argue the point here that you can lose your salvation, then you'll never get it again. The idea of being saved and unsaved, then saved again, unsaved, then saved again, no. It's a one-shot deal. And it goes against the rest of Scripture, which we're going to see. All right, you've got to make all the verses fit. And the way to make the verses fit is to understand this is not talking about true regeneration. He's not talking about them being regenerate here. He's talking about them partaking in a sense of the blessings of the Holy Spirit. For example, um, some of you come from mixed families, you know, and where one's a Christian and one isn't. Now, are your kids, do they have a certain benefit of being in a home where there's a Christian parent? Right. But does that mean they're saved? No. But there's a benefit to it, right? So there's a sense in which the blessings that God pours out on the believers spill over. Look at Potiphar. Was he blessed having Joseph in his house? Sure he was. But now, was he a believer? No. So was he a partaker in the sense of the blessings of God? Yeah, but he was not a believer. There's a difference. Yeah, you're... Mm -hmm. There has to be something they've fallen away from. And so that's how they right. wrongly get into it. Right. But they have their salvation. They lost it. And then they go on to the renew. And they think, oh, you can get it back. No. It says here, if they fall away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. You can't do it. That's the difficulty. It, and, and so what this passage is saying is not that you had it and lost it. You never had it. You came up to the edge, but you turned your back on it, 
and went the other way. Here's a good example. And by the way, the writer of Hebrews uses this in the two chapters before this. He talks about the, the children of Israel. Remember when they, they, they went to Sinai, they got the law, then they come up to the edge of the promised land, send in the 12, tri, uh, 12 spies, they come back, and 10 of them say, we're toast. We're not going to do it. Can't, can't, meet, can't, can't win. And what do the people do that night? Remember? They mourn. God brought us out here to kill us. It's impossible. We can't do it. So God shows up the next day. And what happens to the ten spies that delivered a bad report? Well, God kills them, right? And then what did God tell Israel? Because you would not go in, now you cannot go in for 40 years. In fact, you're going to wander around out there until every one of you guys, 20 years and older, are dead and buried in the wilderness. Then we'll start over again. Now, Israel, being stubborn, decided to do what? Well, we'll go in anyways. And what happened? Disaster. Here's the point. And this is, the, this is what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's saying, you, he's talking to a group of people that are they're right at the edge. They're at the edge of the promised land. They're at the edge of God's rest. They're at the edge of believing. But they haven't believed yet. And he says, if you come up to the edge and you don't go all the way and you turn around and go the other way, what more can God do? You have full light. You know what you need to do. You just need to do it now. And, it, and by the way, were the children of Israel, were they partakers of the blessings of God in the wilderness? On the way there, sure, they ate manna, you know, the water from the rock, everything else. They were partakers, but were they believers? No, because it said they died in unbelief. This is a difficult concept because we struggle with this in our, in our humanness. But the, but the way to understand this is an apostate is someone who knows the truth, understands the truth, has the truth fully revealed, but decide to give a final rejection. They go the other way, and they may live another 50 years. But never again will God call them. Never again will they come to that point of brokenness over their sin. Because God has given them full light. Yeah. But I've seen people like teetering and, you know, maybe walk the other way, maybe not rejecting. You know, I don't right, they may not reject. But they've come back. And that's the thing to understand. We don't know who the apostates are. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying again and again and again in those five warning passages in Hebrews, saying, you better, if God is calling you, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to repent. Because you don't know if you'll have it tomorrow. You don't know if this is the last call that God's given you. I mean, theoretically, people who, who hear the gospel and go to hell, theoretically, there's been a time when they've heard it for the last time, Right? How do you know this is your last opportunity? How do you know this is the last call that God's going to give you? You don't. Therefore, what do you need to do? Repent now. Go all the way. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Say, come on, let's go all of the way. Don't, don't, don't be like those who turn back. Don't be like those who went, who went up to the edge of the promised land and went the other way. And in Hebrews 10, it says, don't, be, don't, don't get up to the point where you're about to believe and then you say, uh, nah, I'm going to go back and kill a bull or goat tomorrow at the temple and that'll take care of my sin. Because now what are you saying about Christ's blood? 
What are you saying about his sacrifice if you do that? He was a criminal. He should have died. He's an imposter. And the writer of Hebrews is saying there's no more sacrifice for sin. You turn your back on the truth. You go the other way. You may, you may send away your day of grace. And understand, and this is a concept that, that you see throughout Scripture, God calls people to salvation, but that call is not a forever call. There comes a day when time is up. And it's different for different people. And you don't know whether that person's their time is up or not. There may be some people, like she said, that, that hear the gospel and they, they, they don't reject it, but they just don't act upon it. And God gives them another opportunity at a later date. And there are some that don't act upon it and that was the last opportunity they had. You don't know. So you need to accept Christ when you have the opportunity. But apostates are people who know the truth, they understand the truth, they've seen it, and particularly in this case, they've seen Jesus Christ. I mean, look at Chorazin and Bethsaida. They saw him do the miracles, raise the dead, heal, and what was their conclusion? He's nuts. He's doing this from Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And Christ says, you're going to die in your sins. God may turn them over to a reprobate mind. We don't know if that's what happens to certain people. But what is a reprobate mind? If you reject the truth and reject the truth, God may finally say, okay, fine. I'll let you go. In the Old Testament, he said of Ephraim, Ephraim is joined to his idols, leave him alone. There's, this is called the, you might, might want to call this the... the Fix it. I, I used to call it the fixative judgment of God. What does it mean? You can, you can have, there are certain people that have sinned to the point where God finally says, look, you don't want me, I'll leave you go. And he lets them go. And where do they go? They go off into their sin. He no longer calls them. You say, well, God calls everybody all the time. No, he doesn't. Is God under obligation to call anybody at any point in time? No. And And... Did he call Judas? Was, was the hand reached out to Judas again and again and again? Yeah, it was. But what happened that night when Judas finally went out of, God's, went out of Christ's presence and went to the betrayal? His day was over. His day of grace was over. His time of repentance was gone. What happened when God shut the door in the ark? Time's up. Now, you're not going to drown for another few days, but your goose is cooked. Because you've rejected. Marshall, you're in. Grace is not something you trifle with. And that's one of the warnings that we need to give people to say, you know, you don't know if God's going to be calling you tomorrow. You don't know if you're going to get another opportunity. And you need to take advantage of it now. Just like the, the man that had all the uh, stuff in the warehouse. Yeah. So don't you get it tonight, you're going to die. Then who yeah. gets all this junk? Yeah. Mm -hmm. We don't know that. See? But what Hebrews is talking about here, this is understanding, what Hebrews and other passages do, they're talking about people who come up to the edge, who they know the truth, they understand the truth, they know about Christ, but they don't act. Mm -hmm. They don't go all the way to faith. And he says that's a very dangerous spot to be in because it could be that you become an apostate, one who knows the truth, but you are willfully rejecting it. And that's, that's, that's the thing to understand. Apostasy is not somebody who's confused about the truth. It's somebody who knows it and says, I don't want anything to do with it. 
were the Pharisees confused about who Jesus was. They just didn't want to believe it. That was their problem. There was no confusion there. They just didn't want to believe it. And because of that, they are going to die in their sins. Um, some confused passages dealing with profession. Remember, this is the Matthew 7 passage. What does it mean? Uh, there's professors and possessors. There are people who say they're Christian, but then there are people who really are Christian. And this is the group that's confused. I mean, they say, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. Didn't we do works in your name? Didn't we perform miracles? Didn't we <coughs> proclaim in your name? And Christ is going to tell them, I don't know who you guys are. I don't know. I don't know you. That's a, this, is, this is cause for self-examination, folks. Is it possible that there are people that we know that think they're a Christian and they're not? This is what this is saying. And they're going to die and wind up at the judgment and scratch your heads and try to figure out, how did I get here? And the answer is going to be because you never placed your faith in Christ. You, thought, you came up to the edge. You, 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 you got around Christians. You sort of talked yourself into thinking you were one of them. You may have even been a, on a part of a ministry team or whatever, but you've never been truly born again. Judas was this way. He was part of the ministry team, but he was never born again. He never truly believed. But he probably knew he was a hypocrite, a fake. He as may have. To others who what's don't. Scary to me is others who, by tradition, have always gone to such and such church, such and such denomination. Yep. Have always. It's been in the family. I was born a Christian. That's right. sort of a mindset that is scary to me because they really don't know. They don't. And it's interesting. Um, how do you know? And we're going to talk about how do you know you're a Christian. But how do you know that you're one of the possessors and not professors? Well, you come in the narrow gate. Um, you ought to read Pilgrim's Progress. I got it on audio and I was listening to it. It's just Great, because he meets these guys. He met Mr. Ignorance along the way. And Mr. Ignorance says, you know, I'm okay. You know, I, I'll make it. I'll be okay. And he said, well, did you come in at the wicket gate, which is the gate, the narrow way? No, I didn't do that. I came an easier way. I got in over the wall. I didn't have to go through the wicket gate. I did not have to get my certificate. I did not go to the cross. But that's okay, because I'm righteous, and God will let me in. And what happens, of course, he gets up to the gates of heaven, and he knocks at the door, and they say, well, who are you? And they tie him up and take him and drop him in hell. And what was it? What's that a picture of? Well, that's a picture of someone like Samuel was saying. They think they're okay. You know, they hang around the church. They, their mom and dad's a Christian. My dad's a deacon. You know, my mother teaches Sunday school. You know, I, I'm, I'm okay. No, if you don't come in the wicked gate, if you don't come in broken over your sin, at the Beatitudes, if you're not broken over your sin, if you do not repent, if you do not see your need of salvation, if you're not broken over your wickedness, you're not a Christian. There's only one way in, and you don't come in over the wall. You come in through the gate. And Christ said, I am the door. If you don't come through me, you're a thief and a robber. And we're going to talk about how you know you're, you're on the right path. But there are people who think they're on the right path, and they're not. And those are the toughest people to reach. Those are the toughest people. One of the great distresses I have is when I look at Roman Catholicism, how many people are in that and say, I go to Mass, I do what the priest says, I, you know, I say my rosary or whatever it is, I'm okay. I pray to Mary, Mary's on my side, whatever. 
I'm okay. Of course I'm a Christian. And they die and find out that it was not truth at all. Do they think they're Christian? Yeah. And that was a tough thing. It's, it's, it's easier to talk about to, to witness to a pagan almost who doesn't know about God than to somebody who thinks they're okay. That's what Christ ran into with the Pharisees, right? He said, well, you guys say you're okay. You don't need a physician. You're fine. You think you're a picture of health. You don't understand how bad off you are. And remember the church at Laodicea says, you think you're rich and you're okay, but you don't understand you're poor, miserable, blind, and naked. You think you're rich and increased with goods. You don't need anything. You're okay. You guys don't understand just how spiritually poor you are. And unless you get to the point where you understand your spiritual poverty and that you can't save yourself and you, you throw yourself on the mercy of God, you're not coming in the narrow way. You're not going in the narrow gate. You're going in another way. And there are people, millions of people, who think they're on the narrow path that they're not. Uh, that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Don't, don't neglect. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 says, don't neglect salvation because it, what happens, and he uses a very interesting picture there, you might drift past the harbor of safety through neglect. There are some people that go to hell because they just, they know, they know it's real, they know Christ is real, but I got time. Right. I got time. And then they get run over by a truck, and that, there's no time. You, you, you can use the words that Christ used about the guy that you just talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. He's saying, thou fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. They're a fool. They're a fool. You don't, you don't, and that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. You don't know how long God's grace has extended to you. You better take advantage of it now. Because you may not have another opportunity. And don't think just because you're a young person you're going to live forever. Go, go, go take a trip down to the graveyard and look at the dates on the tombstones. You'll find there's a lot of people there that are not very old. Yeah. Um, some confused, this is another one, some confused passages dealing with a state of sin to refer to believers committing acts of sin. One of them is 1 John 3.16. This is one that a lot of people use. Um, Whoever abides in in him does not sin. Whoever sins has not seen him, neither known him. So they say, well, you know, I sinned yesterday, so I must not be a Christian. There are people that think that. They look at this passage. They say, well, I sin. I, I still struggle with sin. I must not be a Christian. Well, this is what John is saying. You've got to go to the Greek text to understand what he's talking about here. This, uh, ver this, these verbs are in the perfect tense, which means it's a continuing state of existence. What does that mean? Do we, as Christians, are we continually in a state of sin? So we were born into sin. We're born into sin. Yeah. But is sin a characteristic part of your life in the sense that you sin and sin and it doesn't matter and who cares? And no, no, it can't be habitual. No. That's what John is talking about. John is not talking about you committing an act of sin. We all do that, right? But if you show me someone who is chained to their sin, that is their lifestyle. That is what they are. And there is no conviction, no repentance, no 
no response to God, what does that tell you about that person? They're not a Christian. Charles Spurgeon was talking to a man, and the man says, you know, Spurgeon, you talk about the weight of sin, the weight of sin, the weight of sin. He says, I don't feel the weight of sin. And Spurgeon says, well, I'll tell you what, let's go down to the morgue, and I'm going to take a dead guy, and I'm going to put a big weight on his chest, and I want to ask you this, is he going to feel that weight? No. Why don't you feel the weight? Because you're dead in sin. You don't feel the weight of sin. All right? The, the issue here is not, and this is what John is talking about here, to, to really understand what John is trying to say. John is saying, if you're a believer, you're not going to continue to live in a state of unrepentant, habitual sin. You may struggle with it. You may ask, you know, and we all do that. And he talks about the struggle in his book. He talks about the struggle in 1 John. What John is talking about here is not people who commit an act of sin, but people who live there. Because what does he say in 1 John? If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive, forgive us. us our sin. So that doesn't make... If he's saying if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive it, and then he's saying here about if you sin, you're not born again, that doesn't make any sense. What you need to understand is what he's talking about here is people who are in a state of sin. There are people who say, I'm a Christian, but I'm a Christian pedophile. I'm not making it up. There are people that believe that. How can you be that? If, if, that, if that sin is your state of existence, you're not a Christian. Or I'm a Christian alcoholic. I'm a Christian drug addict. I can take drugs, doesn't matter. You know, it's okay. I can be drunk all the time, doesn't matter. God forgive me anyways. Wait a minute. You don't understand forgiveness. You don't understand grace. And what John is saying is if you're truly born again, you're not going to continually exist in a state of unrepentant sin without God doing something about it. Right? God's going to do something about it. Yeah, I have a first cousin who is living with her partner. Mm-hmm. She's been married with her female partner for seven, almost years now. Absolutely convinced that she is a believer. First Corinthians says neither adulterers nor effeminate nor homosexuals nor liars have any part what is, what, is Paul, what is Paul saying there? Now, he, because go, he, and such were some of you, but now you're washed. You used to be that, now you're not that. And how do you know if you're a Christian? Now, one of the ways, you know, we're going to talk about this in a couple weeks. One of the ways you know you're Christian is you don't make excuses for your sin. You acknowledge it. You may struggle with it, but you acknowledge that it's sin and you want to deal with it and you want to ask God to forgive you and you seek his help. To, to just say, well, you know, I'm just, uh, in this case, I'm just a Christian lesbian. No, it doesn't work that way. And she's had multiple health problems. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And she just doesn't get it. No. Yeah. I was going to say along the same lines, I never understood how there could be, like, gay and priests and things like that, that they have. Sort of don't go together, do they? Because, because what they, because, because what happens is you switch the labels. All right, that's what happened back in Isaiah. Woe to them that call evil good and good evil. Well, you got to understand, Paul was a male misogamist, homophobe from the first century. That no, that's what they're saying. I'm, I'm not making it up. That's 
Go ask them at Oberlin College why that's that way. Well, you know, Paul was just a misogynous homophobe that was, you know, subject to his own backward psychological understandings of the first century ignorant people. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. And because of that, because of that, he, he, he didn't catch on. He didn't understand the modern complexities and nuances and blah, 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 blah. Um, and and that's, that's why they didn't enter the wicket gate. They didn't come through the narrow way. Because you don't define sin by what you think it is. You define sin by what God says it is. And God says very clearly in 1 Corinthians 6, or 2 Corinthians 6, neither effeminate, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor liars, nor thieves, nor drunkards, nor murderers have any part in the kingdom of God. And then you go to, um, what is it, Revelation 21.8, and outside the city were, and it tells you the kind of people that are outside in hell. Yeah. If your characteristic lifestyle is that of rebellion and sin, you don't have a part in the kingdom of God. No. Where are those scriptures? First Corinthians um, 6? First, uh, I think it's 2 Corinthians 6 oh. has that. Okay. I always get them backwards. I think it's 2 Corinthians 6. Um, and Revela I think it's Revelation 21.8. Yeah. All right. Yeah. 21.8. And I think it's 2 Corinthians 6 talks about this. Yeah. Um, oh, maybe it would help if I wasn't in Galatians. I was in actually 2 Corinthians. <laughs> That's what you get when you have multifocals here. Um, maybe 1 Corinthians 6. I was getting, it's 1 Corinthians 6, all right? You had it right. I had it right the first time, see, and I, I redid it. Um, verse 9, let me just read it here. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Rhetorical question, is, it really is. Do you not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God? But such were some of you. But now... You're washed. Now you're sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You used to be that, but you're not that anymore. You may struggle with some of those things, but that's not your characteristic lifestyle. No. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, Paul's personality is certainly there, but it's, you can't say, we're going to discount all these passages because Paul was a misogynous homophobe. I mean, you know what misogynous is? He went hated women? It's misogynous. Misogynous. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you. I know how to pronounce it now. Misogynist. 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 All right. Women haters. Um, that's not, you, you can't go there because you got the Holy Spirit who inspired the Word of God. And you're right. So understand that what Paul and what the Bible talks about is that if you see a person who is in a state of habitual, unrepentant sin, the chances are they're not a Christian. Now, do you know that for certain? No, because it could be like David, who for a period of about a year was in 
sin. But what did God do? God went after him. God went after him. You, you show me someone who's been in a state of sin for years and years and years and no repentance, no remorse, and have actually got to the point where they excuse it as okay, they're in danger of hellfire. Yeah, and if they're not miserable, that... Yeah. Right. Yeah, when I sin, I'm miserable about it. I feel bad. We all feel bad, hopefully. And that's what, that's what John is talking about. He's not talking about people who commit an act of sin and then they're remorseful and they repent. And That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people who that is their characteristic lifestyle. That is what they are. And there's no... You know, when you think of that person, you think of that vice, whatever it is. That's the people he's talking about. He says, don't be deceived. What's really scary is this is becoming like the norm. Oh, yeah. You watch television, what it is, is, is homosexuality now is becoming an accepted, normal part of our life. And people who actually think it's wrong are the odd ducks. They're the weirdos. They're the, you know, the Archie Bunker you know, people of the world that are being scoffed at. Folks, in the end, things are going to get worse and worse. So how do you know we're secure? What, what, what are some of the arguments for it? These are the arguments against it. And understand, we have answers for all of these passages. If you understand them in context, it makes sense what is being talked about. What are some of the arguments for security? Number one, it is consistent with the plan of God. This is one of the one of the greatest passages in the scripture having to do with this is in Romans 8. I mean, this is like the number one text you need to go to. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called. What's the call refer to? Not the general. These are the people. These are the, these are the elect. The called ones. However you want to define election, there's a group of people that God knows that are his. They are the elect. All right, and what happens to the elect? Everything works out for their own good. good. Even the bad things, even the disasters, God is working everything out for his own ultimate plan. So if you're a Christian, nothing happens in your life that's not part of God's, that God can't overrule. It's not that, it's like, oh, God wants me to go sin. That's not what we're talking about here. But when we do sin, even the sin that we do, God can bring around for our own good. good. That's the sovereignty of God at work. And then it says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, we've all argued about what does it mean to foreknow. I don't want to go back down that path. But let's just say from 20,000 feet, whether God chose or whether God just knew you would believe, in eternity past, God knew who was going to be saved, right? However you wanted to define that. So those that he knew were going to be saved, what did he do? He predestined them to be conformed to Christ. Right? And then it says here, um, moreover he did protestinate them, he also called. What was that? Well, that's the effectual call in time. And then those that are called, he justified. What does that mean? To declare righteous before the bar of God. And those he justified, he glorified. Now, look at that. Notice what it says. They're all, not some. And then say, well, God knew some people in eternity past, and some of those he predestined to be 
conform to the image of Christ. And some of the predestinated ones got called. Some of the guys that got called were justified and some of them got glorified. What do you have? All, 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 all. Here's the point. The foreign oath starts when? When did that happen? Before time began. The glorified happens when? In eternity future. Here's the point. The chain from eternity past to eternity future is not broken. See that? You get what's being said there? If God knew you in eternity past, you're certain to be there in eternity future. You don't get dropped along the way. You don't get missed. You look confused. Those whom he foreknew, that happens in eternity past. Okay. Foreknow is eternity past. Glorified is eternity future. Right there. Here's glorified. And the chain is from eternity past to eternity future, you are secure. You can't undo it. It's not saying, well, some of them got justified, got unjustified. Some of them that got glorified were unglorified. From God, it's all one big eternal done deal. You follow that? Okay? Yeah. And then in Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, and that's the plan of God. That's God's eternal decree. So how do I understand that? I understand that in eternity past, God chose me to be glorified. Therefore, I'm not going to lose it. I'm not going to be able to mess it up. I'm not going to be able to undo it, what God has done because it's part of his plan. I'm not going to thwart that because from God, I am seated in the heavenly places even now. In his mind, I am there. Although, temporarily, I'm not there yet. I'm going to be there. And that's what it says in here. He, according to has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. However you want to understand predestination, if you're predestinated, God's going to do what? You're there. You're there. You're not going to lose it. You're not going to get... God's not going to miss you. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense to call you predestinated. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. How can you be predestinated, but if you're not going to get there? Or how can God say, I'm going to glorify you, but maybe I won't? Yeah. Maybe you'll foul it up. Maybe you'll do something to screw this plan up. No, you can't. See, that, that, that's... I'll tell you what, there's great comfort in me understanding that nothing I do is going to follow up the plan of God for my life. Ultimately. So I'm going to get there. Yeah. Right. But what God has done with my will is he's so... He has so drawn me to himself that I wanted to believe. We already talked about this. God did not drag me into the heaven kicking and screaming and I don't want to go there. He so moved the, the, the circumstances of my life, the, all that, that I, want, I, wanted to be, I wanted to believe. I really did. I wanted to believe. In that sense, he knew. You know, and theologians have debated, well, how does that work? We don't know maybe all the ins and outs and all the way we would like to know it. 
But anybody who goes to heaven wants to go there because God draws them to himself. We want to believe. Right. And God didn't speak with all the voice that everybody. Right. And think how strong their faith was back then in the Old Testament. Well, that's what made them heroes of the faith in Hebrews 12, or I mean Hebrews 11. Abraham didn't have a smidgen of what we have, but he put all his eggs in that basket and took off, became a great man of faith. The, the point here is that the plan of God, here's the point. God designed a plan of salvation. The upshot here is God designed a plan of salvation that is not going to be fouled up by what I do for me. He's got it covered. And even all the failures that, he, that I'm going to do yet, he knows about. See, that's the thing. He knows about all the... All, he, God could come down here right now and give me a list of all of the ways I'm going to foul up the rest of my life. And guess what? He still saved me. So can I get one sin up on God that he didn't know about? He knows everything about us. He knows it. And he's forgiven me anyways. It's part of the plan of God. It's consistent with the work of Christ. What do we mean by that? What did Christ do? Christ came to effect the salvation that God ordained in eternity past by being our Savior. What shall we say to these things? This is what he just talked about. What are we going to say about this? Summon it up. If God is for us, who can be? Against us. I want you to understand... You need a noodle on that all week. Think about it. If God is on your side, who can be against you? Now, is God on your side? Yes, he's on your side. Why? Because he chose you in eternity past. God is on your side. So if God, who is the number one supreme sovereign being in the universe, is for you, who can successfully be against you? Nobody. 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 Now, he answers a rhetorical question. Well, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, let's think, who could be against us? Well, what about God the Father? Right? He that spared not his own son, but delivered us up, him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Wait a minute. Would God the Father be against me? Well, no. What did he do? He gave his son to be the sacrifice for my sin. Is he going to be against me? He already did the ultimate sacrifice, right? He already gave the ultimate gift. Do you follow what he's doing here? Would God change his mind? No, he's not going to do that. He already did the ultimate gift. So God's not going to be against us. God the Father. And he further says, well... Is anybody going to lay anything to the charge of God's elect? The idea is anybody going to walk into the court of heaven and lay something to our charge that is not covered? Well, no, because who does the justification? God the Father. And what has God the Father done? He's declared you righteous, which means there's no court of appeal. Is there any court higher than God's court? No, there's no appeal here. There's no appeal process. God is the supreme court of heaven. And when God says you're justified, that is done. You can't undo that. And God's not going to undo that. 
Because he's already given you his son. He's not going to undo what he's already done. So that doesn't, that's not going to work. How about, here's not, what about Christ? I mean, Christ died for me, right? Could he, could he do that? Could he maybe say, look, you know, Schaefer's really not worth the bother, Father? Is he going to come against me? Well, it's Christ that died, yea, rather is risen again, who's even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Well, no, he's not, because what, what is Christ doing right now in heaven for me? Interceding for us. So he's my lawyer. He's not going to go against me, right? He's my advocate. So I got God the Father on my side. I got Christ on my side. That's pretty good. And it says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? What, is something going to separate me from that? I mean, not only Christ, here's the point. Not only is Christ defending me, but he wants to defend me. You know, a lot of times you might get a lawyer that does the job because they have to do the job, but they really don't want to do the job. We've got an advocate who wants to defend us. We've got an advocate who is eager to defend us before the Father. And not only is he he's eager to defend us, he loves us. And he's going to give us the best defense we can have. And Well, what, what else could do that? Well, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? How about tribulation? No. Nope. Distress? No. Nope. Persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. All these things that we face in life, is this going to separate us from God's love? No. No, it can't. As is written, for thy sake we're killed all day long, we're counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors. The Greek words, I love the Greek words, hupu nike. It means you are more than conquerors. In other words, you don't win by one point. You blow them away. It's like playing a football game where the score is 5,000 to nothing and you've got a minute left to play. There, you, know, you, you don't just get in by the skin of your teeth. You are super conquerors because of what Christ has done for you. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, angels, are angels going to be able to get in between me and God? No. They're created beings. Principalities or powers, what are those? Those are demonic forces. Are they going to get in between me and God? No. No, they're not going to be able to do that. How about things present? Anything we've got now? Nope. How about all the stuff that may come later? Nope, that's not going to do it either. Nor height nor depth. The highest point in the sky to the lowest point. Is, is, that, is there anything in there that's going to separate me no. from the love of God? How about any other created being? No. Nope. Nobody will, is going to be able to separate me from the love of God. You understand what this is saying? If God is for you, who's going to be against you? And by the way, who's included in any other creation? Me. I'm going to, I'm going to thwart the plan of God? Nope. See, there are some people that say, yeah, well, you're forever secure, but if you really want to, you can jump out of God's hand. I can't do that. Nope. I can't. I can't be plucked from his hand. I'm not going to jump from his hand nope. because I don't want to jump from his hand because he keeps me. You follow what this passage is saying? Nobody in the universe is going to come between you and God's justification because God is the one who's declared you righteous. He is the highest court in the universe. There is no court of appeal. There is no second trial to be had. Your advocate who is there on, on your side is Jesus Christ who died for you, who rose again for you, who loves you, 
and he's not going to go against you. And if Christ and God are on your side, folks, there's no one else that can go up against that. Nope. Nobody. Satan is not going to be able to mess it up. It's consistent with the work of Christ. What did Christ come to do? To save me. To die for my sin. John 6, 37-39. We already talked about this. All the Father gives to me will come to me. Him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the Father's will of him that sent me, that all he has given me I should lose none, but raise it up at the last day. Christ is saying, if you come to me, I'm going to accept you. Right? It's not that you're going to come to Christ and Christ says, nah, I don't want you. No. If you come to Christ, Christ accepts you. And what happens in the last day? He raises you up in the last day. Anybody get lost along the way? Christ says, well, some of you that come, you know, you might make it through the resurrection. The rest of you, well, you know, you, you tried. No. There's no loss along the way. There's nobody gets dropped. If you come to Christ, you get raised at the last day. Jude one twenty four. Not unto him that is able to keep you from falling. Jude is about apostasy. And the word under, behind falling is apostasia, to fall away from. What is Christ able to keep you as a believer from doing? Falling away. Here's the point. If you're a believer, you cannot apostatize because it's not, part, it's not possible for you to do that. Christ is not going to let you do that. It's impossible for you to fall away because Christ is keeping you. Notice who's doing the keeping. Are you? No. It's God who's doing the keeping. That's the point. The thing to understand here, folks, it's not that I keep myself saved because I can't. God is keeping me saved. God is keeping me redeemed. God is keeping me in the palm of his hand, not me. And it says he's able to keep me from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. What's going to happen someday? I'm going to present it faultless before the throne of God. Why? Because I kept myself? Because God kept me. This is a work of God, folks. Your salvation is secure because it's a work of God that keeps you secure. And you've got God on your side and no one is going to be able to successfully thwart his will for your life. Nobody. He's not going to do it and no one else can. So you're, you're secure. Well, we'll pick up with the rest of these next week. All right? Work our way down through. Yeah, it does. Nike, the golf, you know, conqueror. Yeah. Okay, well, let's uh, close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this day that you've granted to us and pray that you'd help us to ponder these truths. Thank you that we're secure, Father, and that you're going to keep us not because anything of that which we have done, but because you are the powerful God of the universe who sent your son to die for us and you're on our side and there's nothing that's going to be able to separate us from that love and from that purpose. And we thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.